Well, good morning. I'm excited to be here preaching with you this morning. I'm a little under the weather, um, so hopefully uh, we can make it through without a lot of coughing or sneezing or any of that good stuff. But I'm excited to be here, but I'm also a little sad, if I'm honest with you today. I'm a little sad because we are going to be wrapping up the book of 1 Thessalonians. For three months, the Spirit of God through Paul has been exhorting us, exhorting us all to live together in brotherly love, all for the sake of the gospel. And now this wonderful letter, it's drawing to a close. Kind of feels a little bit like we're saying goodbye to an old friend. I know for me personally, I'm going to miss Paul's exhortations. His exhortations to change the world, to excel still more, to to take heart in my grief because Christ is coming back. I'm going to miss his exhortation to passionately pursue sanctification because that's God's will for my life. Not only that, but I'm going to miss those little glimpses that we got to see into the heart of Paul as he paused to pray for us and to pray for the church at Thessalonica all throughout the book. In our passage this morning, we're going to get one last opportunity to see uh, into the heart of Paul as he pauses and prays. We're going to get to see his character a little bit and his theology. I say we're going to get to see his character and his theology because I believe that when you watch someone pray, you can get a feeling of who they are, who a person is, and what they believe. When you listen to them pray. Maybe not in just a single prayer here or there, but as you listen to a person pray over time, you get a feel about who this person is and what they believe in. This morning, Paul's going to kick off the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians, and he's going to do it with a prayer. And you know, that really shouldn't surprise us because he's been praying all along throughout the entire book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul was praying to the Lord. He was thankful for the Thessalonians. He, he was thankful for their work of faith, their, their labor of love, and their steadfast hope. He was thankful for them because he had seen God choose them. He, he saw that they had been called by God into salvation. Paul knew that because he was the guy that got to actually preach the gospel to them. He knew that God had called them because he watched them repent. He saw them turn away from idolatry and turn towards the one true God, even in the midst of affliction. And seeing that gave Paul gratitude. He he was thankful. Chapter 2, Paul was thankful again. In chapter 2, he was thankful that when he preached the word of God to them, the, the Thessalonians received the word of God for what it was. Not man's words, but indeed the word of God that was working in them. Chapter 3, Paul prayed again. This time when he prayed, he prayed to God, asking the Lord to make the Thessalonians increase and abound in love. Does that seem a little strange to you? Just in a real practical sense. If I mean, Paul's like a father in the faith to them. And if you were wanting your children to increase and abound in love, if they weren't... in engaging in love with one another, if they weren't um, loving as much as you'd like, what would you do? I imagine you'd probably just tell them, right? You'd say, hey, you need to love each other a little more. Love your brother, love your sister, right? 
But when Paul's put in this situation, that's not what he does, at least not at first. He cries out to the Lord and he asks that God would cause them, that God would cause them to abound in love for each other. You see, Paul's prayer tells us a little something about Paul's theology. It would seem that Paul believes that the Thessalonians' ability to abound in love was directly connected and dependent on what God did or did not do in their lives. But then we came to chapter 4, and in chapter 4, Paul seemed to contradict a little bit what he had just prayed. Because in chapter 4, he told us to be holy. He told us to live holy lives. He gave us the prescription for sanctification. Chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then all through chapters 4 and chapter 5, he exhorted us to grow in sanctification. He said, this is how you engage in sanctification. Sanctification, this is how you live holy. Flee sexual immorality, love one another, grieve with hope, be ready for the return of Christ. He said, follow these commands. That was the prescription for sanctification. And that seems a little bit contradictory or maybe a little bit of a problem or at least a little bit confusing confusing in light of what he told us in chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, his prayer indicated that our sanctification was, for the most part, dependent on God, right? And then in chapters 4 and 5, it would seem that our sanctification is dependent on us. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, thankfully, in our passage this morning, Paul is going to help us out a little bit. He's going to knit these two truths together. But I got to warn you, before we get started, we're going to be in the deep end of the pool a lot today. We're going to be wading through some deep doctrinal truth, all right? So get your waders on, get ready, because we're going to get after it, all right? It's going to be intense. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Verses 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul told us that God's will for our life was our sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Christ. It's the process of becoming holy. And Paul told us all through chapters 4 and chapter 5, the way in which you are sanctified, the way in which you grow in holiness, the way that you do that is by walking in obedience to these commands. He gave us command after command after command. He bombarded us with them, if you remember all for the purpose of our sanctification. Paul was saying to us that holy living, walking in obedience is necessary. It's required for us. Do you get the implication of what Paul's saying to us there? Do you feel the weight? Hebrews 12, 14 says it like this. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if we don't live holy, 
if we don't walk in obedience to the Lord's commands, we won't be saved. Now, hang with me. I see some of you starting to squirm, and that's good. I'm not preaching salvation by works. I, I told an elder one time, if you ever saw me preaching heresy, which that would be, salvation by works would be, that he better come and just get me off the stage. He better tackle me if that's what it took. Don't, don't do it yet. Hang with me. Because in verse 23, Paul cries out to the Lord saying, God, sanctify them. Make them holy. He says, I've given them the commands, Lord. I've given them the prescription for sanctification. But now, God, I'm crying out to you in prayer to sanctify them, to make them holy. He's saying, if you don't do this, Lord, if you don't work in them and make them holy, they don't stand a chance. They're hopeless. So, God, please do this. Please sanctify them. He told us that the way God sanctifies us is through obedience to the commands. But now he's saying our only hope of walking in obedience to those commands is Christ in us, working through us to walk in obedience to them. That's why Paul's asking the Lord to to work in us, to make these, to make us available and uh, uh, able to carry out these commands. That's the big picture here. That's what Paul's communicating to us. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that Christ in us, working through us, is how we are sanctified. But I want to break down where Paul's going here. I want us to just really tear this passage apart. So Paul starts off the prayer saying, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Why does Paul address God as the God of peace? There's plenty of passages all throughout the Bible where God is Uh, named or called the God of peace. But why here? I believe that Paul's calling him the God of peace because it's the perfect word to illustrate what God has done for us. Before we came to faith, before God called us to salvation, we were at odds with God. Colossians 1.21 says that we were alienated from him. And even, it even goes so far as to say that we were enemies of God. Enemies. Romans 5.10 says that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And when we place our faith in Christ and we place our faith in his substitutionary death on the cross for our sin, God credits his death to our account. Our sins are placed on Christ and Christ's righteousness is placed on us. God imputes his righteousness to us. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We call that the doctrine of justification. We've been talking about sanctification for for weeks and weeks now, but I want us to backtrack a little bit and talk about this idea, this concept of justification. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal declaration. It's kind of like when you're in a courtroom and the judge declares someone not guilty. When the judge declares someone not guilty, he's not making any sort of comments or implications about the individual's character, about his behavior. He's simply saying that the man who stands in front of me accused is now not liable for the accusations against him. 
In other words, you were at odds, but now you are at peace. And the Bible tells us that all of humanity, each and every one of us, has been accused of crimes, accused of sin that we've actually committed. And there will come a day when God will declare everyone guilty. But justification, what Christ has done on the cross, changes that for us. By faith, justification changes our status. We're moved from guilty to not guilty. We pass from death to life. Our position has changed. That's what justification is. We're no longer where we were. And then that's where sanctification comes in. Because our behavior... Our character is still a mess, right? We've, we've changed status, but we still behave badly. And that's where sanctification comes in. Sanctification is the process of God working in us and through us to make us more and more like Christ. It's the process of us walking in obedience to God to become more like him. Think of it like this. Justification, it's legal. It's external to you. Someone declares you justified. And it happens in an instant. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a process. It's internal. When you place your faith in Christ, God justifies you in a moment. One second, you are an enemy of God. The next second, you are a friend of God. You can't grow in justification you can't become more justified you can't say i'm a little more justified this week than i was last week no that's impossible you either are or you are not sanctification though it's the process you can grow in that you can become more and more like christ when uh, tammy and i lived in england we lived there for about three years There were times um, when the Queen of England, Her Majesty the Queen, would purchase property. You'd see it on the telly, as they say, or in the paper. She'd purchase the property and the union, which is the British flag, it would go up over the residence, announcing to everyone, this is the property of the Queen. And on one of those occasions, Tammy and I, we visited around, we toured some different things. I noticed that the union wasn't flying overhead the royal uh, standard, the personal flag of the queen was flying. And so I asked the man working there, I said, what happened? What happened? Why is the flag different? Why is the flag changed? And he said, well, you see, when she purchased um, the property, it wasn't fit for the queen. It was hers, but it wasn't fit for the queen. And so they had to come in, they had to renovate it and uh, prepare it for her. And more importantly than that, he said, you see the royal standard? That flag only flies when the queen is actually in residence, when she's actually there. The kingdom of God is not like the monarchy of England. When Christ purchases you with his blood, the royal standard goes up and Christ moves in. He does not wait for you to be renovated. No, he moves in, in that moment. He comes in and takes up residence within you. He doesn't wait till the rooms of your heart are are changed. No, he moves in and then partners with you 
to piece by piece and bit by bit grow in sanctification, to renovate your heart. Christ in you, working through you, transforms you. That's your hope. That's the hope of glory that we have. Christ in you makes you new. So many people have said to me something like this. Well, you know, I, I can't really come to church because, well, you see, my life's really messed up right now. I've got all these things going on. I, as soon as I get my life fixed, as soon as I get my life straightened out, I'll come. I'll come then. Do you see how backwards that line of thinking is? That's like someone jumping into a pigsty, getting covered with all the muck and the mire, climbing out and saying, okay, I need a box of baby wipes because I'm going to try to clean myself up enough to take a shower. That, that's just crazy. No, just take the shower, right? Just get in and be cleansed. If you could clean yourself up, if you could justify yourself, then you wouldn't need Christ. Here's the deal. The only sin that you can overcome is the sin he's already overcame for you on the cross. The only righteousness that you can achieve is the righteousness that he has credited to your account. If you miss that or if you somehow get those two things backwards, if you mess that up, if you get justification, um, if you get sanctification before justification, you're going to be miserable. Because one of two things is going to happen for you. You're either going to be walking around defeated and in despair because you're never going to be able to do enough. You're never going to be able to overcome sin. Or on the flip side, you're going to walk around full of pride and self-righteousness because you're going to think that you did it. That's like the Pharisees. You're going to think that you did it, that you achieved righteousness apart from God, apart from Christ. You did it yourself. No, it's Christ in you and through you making you holy. Paul continues saying, now may the God of peace himself, himself. Paul prays that God himself would sanctify you. He doesn't pray for some sort of angelic renovation crew to come into your heart and prepare it for the king. No, he's asking that the king himself would come in and begin to transform every room in your heart. He he prays that God would make you holy through and through. Every nook and cranny of your life, every little hidden area of your heart, those secret areas that you don't talk about, every recess, he wants them to be washed clean. He's praying that Christ in you would work through you to walk in obedience to the commands. He wants God to move you away from sin and toward salvation, toward Christ-likeness. Then Paul asks the Lord to keep you blameless until the day of Christ. At the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God declared you blameless. I, I love that word. I love that picture. Without blame, free from guilt, innocent of wrong, the wrath of God for your sin poured out on Christ and his righteousness credited to you so that he could declare you blameless. You know, in modern day Thessalonica, it's actually called Thessaloniki now. Um, In modern day Thessaloniki, um, it's a little small coastal town on the Aegean Sea uh, in the country of Greece. 
archaeologists have uncovered graves. And those graves have one word carved into the stone. Blameless. The modern or the early Christians were marking their graves with one word, blameless. Possibly even the Christians that Paul was writing to. Blameless. When we see ourselves the way God sees us, it ought to change how we live. I have three little girls. One of them would tell me right now, in no uncertain terms, she's not little anymore. In fact, all three of them might say, Dad, we're not little. But they're little to me. And uh, at one time, all of them, at some point in their life, as they were growing up, as they're young, they would come to me, usually on a Sunday morning, all dressed up uh, in a beautiful dress, looking adorable as ever, and yet, at that moment, not sure in themselves of how they looked, of who they were. And the scene would usually go something like this. You know, they come up to me, their head's kind of down, they're smoothing out their dress, kind of a little, not so sure, a little wobble, right? And in a little timid voice, I mean, you've seen this. Daddy, how do I look? Sweetheart, you look beautiful. And the response was instant and evident. Head up. Eyes wide, smile on the face. Really? I do? Mommy, did you hear what daddy said? I'm beautiful. I'm beautiful. They were coming to me looking for assurance. Wanting to know who they were. Oh, that we would see who we are in Christ. Oh, that we would see that we are covered by the blood of Christ and he has declared us blameless. And then what would it be like if we actually lived like that? When the reality of who we are sinks in, it ought to change how we live. It ought to drive us to pursue sanctification. Not that we can somehow try to earn God's praise and his love, but because we already have it. Paul prays that God would keep us blameless. He's asking God to to sustain us, to maintain us in the pursuit of sanctification. I've been reading this book by the great British theologian J.I. Packer. It's called Knowing God. And in the book, uh, Packer says this little sentence that directly relates to this idea of keeping us holy, keeping us blameless. He says, you are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Paul prayed that our whole spirit, our soul, and our body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pause for a minute and and address Um, There's a little something here that Paul says in the text. It's become a topic of debate in some circles. It really shouldn't have, but it has. And so I want to talk through it real quick. When Paul asks the Lord to keep us, he asks the Lord to keep our whole spirit, our soul, and our body blameless. He mentions three aspects that's led some people to believe that we are trichotomous beings. 
In other words, plain and simple, that we're made up of three parts. But this is the only time in Scripture that this is even a question. Everywhere else, we are described as dichotomous, as having two parts. You have the material and the immaterial. You have your body and you have your soul. And the people who are making a big deal about Paul's word usage here, his verbiage, they've missed the point. They've missed what Paul was trying to communicate. Because it really doesn't matter if you're made up of two parts or three parts. Paul wasn't writing a treatise on the nature of man here in Thessalonians. No, he was simply saying, I want God to keep all of you completely, every part of you, every single aspect of who you are. We see something similar in Luke uh, 10, 27, when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus wasn't saying, I want you to study these various parts of who you are and, and figure out how you can love God with these, all of these little areas. No, he was simply saying, love God with everything that you have. Be all in, in every single way. And, and Paul's saying the same kind of thing. He's saying, may God keep you blameless in every area of your life, in every aspect of who you are. That was Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. That's Paul's prayer for us, that God would sanctify us completely and keep us blameless. He's given us the prescription for sanctification that we would walk in obedience to the Lord's commands. He's prayed that God would bring that to pass, that God would sanctify us completely. And then in verse 24, he gives us the promise of God. He says, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul said in chapter one, I know that God has called you to faith. And now, here in 24, it's as if he's saying, the certainty of your call is guaranteeing the certainty of your sanctification. Your sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ, is as definite as your justification was. That moment when Christ declared you blameless. So if you were truly called, then you are most certainly going to be sanctified. Those two things, they go hand in hand. You, you can't have one without the other. You can't divide the two. And some of you might be wondering, how does the fact that God called me guarantee my sanctification? How, how does that work out? Well, it's the nature of the call. The nature of the call guarantees your sanctification because when God called you, he called you to holiness. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said, For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. We are called to sanctification. His purpose in calling us was to make us holy. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says that those who are called, the people who have placed their faith in Christ, are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? What's his will? Our sanctification. In 29, he says, for those he called, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's Paul giving a description of what sanctification is, conforming to the image of his son. In 30, he says, whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Did you catch that? 
when you placed your faith in Christ, when Christ called you to faith, you were justified. It was done. And true justification gives you the hope, gives you the assurance, gives you the guarantee of glorification. That's the final step. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. A day is coming when we are going to receive glorified bodies. We will be freed from this this body of sin. We'll be given a new glorified body. A, A body flowing with hair. Sorry, just got a little carried away. We don't know what that body will look like. John says that we have no idea what it will look like, but we know this. We know that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And that hope of glorification should cause us to pursue sanctification. And so Paul says, know this, as you pursue sanctification, he will sanctify you. God will do it. And by definition, that means right now. He's going to sanctify you now, daily transforming you into the image of his son. Ephesians 1, 4 says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless. And if you turn over a few chapters to chapter 5, verse 26, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Christ loved you and died for you. For what purpose? To make you holy. And he's doing it even now. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's his good pleasure? What's his will? Thessalonians 4.3. It's your sanctification. Last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest moment and event in history. Jesus died and rose again. But don't miss this. He died and rose again, not only to free you from sin, but to free you to sanctification. He freed you so that you could walk in obedience to his commands. He didn't die for you so that you could just keep on sinning. No, he died to make you holy. And rising again, defeating death and the grave, proved once and for all that he has the power to do it and he is doing it. Therefore, therefore, Paul can say now in the words of the hymn writer, the words that we sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. You know, we sing those songs, we come to church, we we sing those lyrics, but I think a lot of us, when we get to the chorus that says, this is my story, this is my song, some of you quietly, not out loud, you say to yourself, I wish that was my story. If only that were my story song but Jamie you don't you don't know my past you don't know the sin that I struggle with on a daily basis I've I've tried to defeat it I've tried to be good but listen I can't I can't be holy don't miss Paul's words he 
who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Don't say, I can't be good. No, God has made you good. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Some of you walk around defeated, thinking that you let God down. Listen, you were never holding God up. He holds you up, Isaiah says, with his righteous right hand. He, he holds you up. And so I want to exhort you this morning, listen to the voice of truth. You've listened to so many people, you've even listened to yourself say things like, I can't. But the voice of truth says something different. It doesn't say you can, it says he can. And he will. He will surely do it. Church, it doesn't get much better than that. He will do it. In verse 25, Paul starts wrapping it up. He says, brothers, pray for us. Every time I read that, I kind of get a little chuckle inside, a little laugh, because I'm thinking, Paul just said, pray for me. Paul, one of the greatest missionaries in the world, arguably. One of the greatest articulators of the gospel. He wrote 1 Thessalonians, not to mention over half of the New Testament. And he says, pray for me, would you? Paul's just preached to us about sanctification. He's just told us that God will surely do it. But Paul knows who he is. He knows he's still in the process. And so he says, pray for me. I need the prayer just like you do. Church, we ought to be praying for one another. We ought to be lifting one another up in in prayer as we journey together through this process of sanctification. Then in verse 26, he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Culturally in Paul's day and even in our day in various countries around the globe, friends will walk up to each other and kiss someone on the cheek or maybe both cheeks. I remember the first time that happened to me in Turkey, I was a little shocked because we're not accustomed to that custom. And Paul's not telling us to incorporate that. He's not saying when you come to church on Sunday, walk up, hey, you know, and just give someone a big kiss. Don't do that, all right? But just because we don't engage in the custom that Paul engaged in in that time doesn't mean we can overlook Paul's point. What's his point? He's saying love each other. Engage each other in brotherly love. Greet each other with a handshake, with a hug. Treat each other like family because that's what you are in Christ. And then in verse 27, Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. At first glance, Paul's final request here seems a little little harsh, doesn't it? And it almost seems out of place until you consider two things. First, I believe that this letter to the Thessalonians wasn't just any old letter. Paul knew what he was writing. This was the inspired word of God. The spirit of God through Paul was writing scripture. Back in chapter 2, Paul said that the Thessalonians received it for what it was, the word of God. And that really leads us into the second point. God has called us 
to sanctification. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. What's the truth? He tells us, he says, your word is truth. We are to becoming more and more and more like Christ. And it's the word of God that is to help us in the process. The word of truth helps us to know more about the truth, Jesus Christ. So Paul told the Thessalonians, he says, I'm putting you under oath to read God's word so that you can learn more about who God is and thus become more like him. In short, read the Bible so you can know God. Know God so you can become like him. I, I mentioned earlier J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, and he, he has a quote here that I want to read because I believe it's so applicable to what Paul is telling us. It's a little long, but here, here it is. Packer says, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. Just as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself, so in the same way we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing God, whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. In this way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. Paul put the Thessalonians under oath to read the word of God. We would be fools to do no less. So so I charge you, I, I beg you, read the word of God. Read it to your families. Read it to your children and your grandchildren. Read God's word. Ignoring the reading of God's word is one way that Packer says is a way to waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't neglect the reading of God's word. Don't neglect sanctification. Pursue it. Strive for it, as the writer of Hebrews says. Paul wraps it up with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As you pursue sanctification, do it knowing that the grace of God that justified you will surely sanctify you completely. He who called you is faithful. He will surely 